millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Welcome to Audiophile, Nature's Sound Science Series. I'm Ewan Calloway, and in this episode, I'm going in search of lost sound. That's the voice of Alexander Melville Bell, the father of inventor Alexander Graham Bell. He's reading a line from Hamlet. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Bell captured his father's voice in 1881. It's one of the earliest audio recordings ever made, but it was nearly lost forever. You had things that were falling apart in some cases. This is Carl Haber. He's a physicist at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab in California, and he's managed to resurrect Bell's early recordings, including the one you just heard. They hadn't been played for nearly a century. They're too delicate to touch with a needle. You had things that every time you touched them, you would degrade them further through the playback mechanism. Lots of early recordings are like this. Yet within that material, there was just a huge amount of significant information Musical history, interviews. Despite his physics background, Haber's really into history. The past is, it's a fixed thing. They're not making any more of it. I think it's tremendous, personally think it's tremendously important that we preserve the past. We'll get to the rest of his story soon enough. But first, I want to tell you about a man who asked if there were even older recordings out there, just waiting to be heard. I first came across uh, Richard Woodbridge III um, just searching on the internet. This is Dan Scott. He's a sound artist. If you search the web for ancient or lost sound, as Dan did, you'll come across Woodbridge. He was an engineer, an inventor. In the 1960s, he proposed that sounds could be accidentally recorded onto everyday objects, like pots and paintings. My first reaction was that it was something more from science fiction or... um, It didn't seem that probable. Nonetheless, Woodbridge's ideas inspired Scott's artistic imagination. He already had an interest in the sounds of the past. He made a work about a musical clock supposedly owned by Marie Antoinette. 
So Scott gave Woodbridge the benefit of the doubt. I was I was interested in um, in the possibilities of sound being being heard from from before the the advent of um, sound re- reproducing technology. And I'd heard about this this theory of um, pot recording. The idea is that when someone made a pot, the surrounding sounds were engraved in the wet clay, just like a vinyl recording. The, the first vision I had was that, that you could go into the Victorian Albert Museum, into the, the, their huge galleries of um, ancient pottery, and you could take your stylus and listen to each pot and hear all these different moments in history, and that's just a kind of mind-blowing thought. <laughs> Woodbridge went to Princeton, and he graduated with a degree in chemical engineering in 1939. He got a job at an insurance company where he worked his entire life. But Dan Scott spoke to his son, Dick Woodbridge, and learned about his creative side. He used the phrase he was a a renaissance man, which I think probably best describes him. So when he was at Princeton, he was the, the chairman of the Poetry Society. He wrote poetry for his whole life. He was interested in um, botany. He was interested in bird life. Woodbridge was also an inventor. He made the world's first underwater ultraviolet flashlight. And he and his son used to go night diving off the coast of Maine. He kept himself busy. He had a day job, but he also um, continued various inquiries in his spare time, one of which was this um, investigation into sound recording or the potential of um, sound recording in antiquity. He called this this whole area adventitious recording because it was accidental, it was his theory, that these, these sounds would have been recorded accidentally. For example, when a potter is spinning a pot and marking that pot with some kind of stylus or some kind of device, um, sound waves in the space that the potter is, is working could affect that stylus and inscribe sound in the same way that um, a, a vinyl is inscribed with sound. That was one of his ideas. And the, another one was that when a painter is painting on a canvas, similarly sound waves in the, in the, the space where the painter is painting could, could again be inscribed into the paint. Woodbridge did a series of experiments and wrote them up in a paper. This letter is primarily intended to call attention to the potentials of acoustic archaeology and to record the early experiments which established the principle. The article appeared in the August 1969 issue of the Proceedings of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, or IEEE. It was, and still is, one of the top journals in its field. Woodbridge's short letter described his efforts to engrave sound into pottery and paintings. Two areas of the author's investigation will be of interest. One, the recording of sound in wheel-thrown clay pots and in both cases, he claimed that when he ran a basic kind of home stylus from a record player over the paint on a painting and the clay grooves on a pot, some sound was recorded and he could hear, in the case of the pot, the humming of the um, motor under the potter's wheel. And in the case of the paint, he could hear, what well, when they were recording, I, I say this in inverted commas, when they were recording, someone was saying the word blue. This is of particular interest as it introduces the possibility of actually recalling and hearing the voices and words of eminent personages as recorded in the paint of their portraits or of famous artists in their pictures. I think he spoke about Rembrandt in his original journal, about the possibility of going back to Rembrandt's studio. Probably what you'd hear would, would 
possibly not be that interesting. You'd hear someone painting, and, you know, huffing and puffing every now and again. When I heard about Woodbridge's ideas, I kind of imagined him obsessing over the sounds of the past. But according to his son, it was just another idea in a constantly churning mind. His son was saying that for him, it was just another bit of research. He, he published the paper and he kind of moved on. But something about his ideas stuck. Well, it's a very romantic idea, right, that, that sound, the sounds of the past, um, actually uh, persist in some way. This is Carl Haber again. He's interested in the physics of audio recording. I asked him about the science underlying Woodbridge's ideas. Could sound have been accidentally recorded? Well, the first thing that impressed me when I studied how Edison and others recorded sound was how deliberate they had to be about it. Uh, it wasn't just, you know, th- something that that pops out. So that's Haber's first take on Woodbridge. Nice idea, shame about the physics. Fundamentally, sound is the vibration of air molecules, creating waves that ripple through the air over time. For a clay pot to record the sound around it, you'd need some way of etching sound waves onto it millisecond by millisecond. The average LP contains about 20 minutes of sound per side and the groove is hundreds of meters long. So if you want to think that sound was recorded accidentally, you need a process which naturally spreads time out in a way that you can, that you can read it. So I just came back from a hiking trip in Zion National Park uh, with my daughter. And because this is the, uh, the Virgin River cut whatever it is, 3,000 feet of sedimentary rock, you know, you see 150 million years of of geological time spread out over, say, 3,000 feet. But that is not giving you anything like the resolution that you need to see time in fractions of a second. Haber is most interested in deliberately recorded sounds, particularly those at risk of being lost. He got into it through an unlikely route, particle physics. I work uh, at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. Haber works on imaging techniques that help align the parts of a particle detector at the LHC. His team took pictures of its pieces to be sure they fit together. The detector he was measuring is called ATLAS, which helped discover the Higgs boson. Haber wondered what else he could take pictures of in exquisite detail. And then he heard a story on the radio. About the Library of Congress and its uh, collections of audio recordings. And the the speaker was Mickey Hart. He's a famous percussionist uh, and musicologist and person who's an advocate for the uh, preservation of our world's recorded sound heritage. And when Haber heard the story, he thought of his painstaking imaging work for the LHC. Why not turn recorded sound from these dilapidated, unplayable records into pictures. So it seemed that if you could transform them into pictures, you could, in principle, embrace a very, very general solution to the problem. Because 
no matter how big they were, what color they were, what shape they were in, whether the groove was so big or so small, it becomes a software issue. It's almost like the Xerox machine. You can Xerox a magazine. You can Xerox a, a notebook. You can Xerox a memo. You can Xerox a post-it note. As long as you can get it onto the Xerox machine, you can copy it. And in some sense, we were groping for a Xerox-like uh, approach to these sound recordings. This is the system. This is Irene. Irene stands for Image, Reconstruct, Erase, Noise, etc. The device is nothing like a Xerox machine. It looks like a record player from the future, with a microscope and camera lens facing down on the turntable instead of a stylus. And it's all resting on a special tabletop that stops vibration. This is the 2D scanner. So it's a camera and a certain optics and the light source. And this is the 3D scanner, the confocal microscope. And uh, both of these things move on this stage that goes from side to side. And we can put a cylinder here or a disc, and we can move the system back and forth. The scanners take incredibly detailed pictures of the record grooves. On some of the recordings, the groove you can think of as just a triangular-shaped trench, and it moves from side to side in the plane of the material, left and right. And that is the direction that represents the, the changing amplitude and the frequency of the sound. The idea of our approach is to turn the surface of the object into a picture such that the meaningful information can be extracted. At least that was the idea. But it took Haber months of tinkering to get pictures that were clear enough. Well, the first time I, I thought we were on to something was, was the very first time that, that we heard any sound come out of one of these pictures. That was a kind of, uh, you know, baby is born moment. In that case, that was in 2002, and my colleague Vitaly Fideyev, he came in on a Saturday or a couple Saturdays and used an existing piece of equipment to uh, measure in a very laborious way. I think it took an hour to measure one second of sound. But he got some sound off, off a disc, and then he came and said, do you want to hear this? And I was just taken aback. It was shocking to hear sound come out of this data file. What was the sound? The very first uh, disc that he scanned was a, a, was a, a Les Paul recording. And then I think it got dropped. And so very quickly, we, we scanned a second recording, which I know what that one was. It was Goodnight Irene. Uh, it was recording by the Weavers, 1950 or something like that. Exciting as this was, these were sounds you could still hear with a turntable. In fact, here's what that recording of Goodnight Irene sounded like when Haber's team played it the old-fashioned way. The track is the reason they named their device Irene. In 2007, we played a very heavily damaged cylinder, a wax cylinder that had been sort of attacked by mold. I would say it was marginally playable, and it was a recording of Jack London actually dictating a letter. So I think at that point, we were starting to get into the materials that, that really were not playable. 
then in starting in I don't know 2010 we we did a lot of really unplayable materials from the Smithsonian things that were experimental recordings from the 1880s of Alexander Graham Bell that were cracked and falling apart and just things that that you would never think to play Do you have a favorite recording? There's a recording that was made in the Volta Laboratory, uh, which is, which was the laboratory that Alexander Graham Bell established in Washington. So there's this one recording where they actually used photography to make the recording. So they exposed a disc that had a photographic emulsion on it, and they varied the intensity of the light with sound. But it, it, I like this recording because in the middle something clearly goes wrong and they kind of utter a profanity. You have to hear these things over and over again, but it's Mary had a little lamb and then it abruptly stops and you hear him say, oh. Did you hear it? I, I heard something. I think I'd have to listen to yeah, it. Yeah, you listen to it over and over again. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you what I think it is in, okay. in a few weeks. Okay. I still haven't decided what Bell said, and Haber and his colleagues were still arguing over it the day I visited. Resurrecting ancient obscenities isn't the only application for his work. They're building more Irenes, including one in India, and Haber and his colleagues just won a grant to recover thousands of ethnographic and linguistic recordings from Native Americans. These document languages that no one speaks anymore, songs that no one sings, and stories that no one tells. And it's our thirst for knowledge about the past that keeps Haber searching for old recordings. And maybe means that Woodbridge's ideas will never go away. Could better techniques, Irene 2.0 or 4.0, take us further back in time than Edison? Further even than Rembrandt? What did it feel like to people to be in prehistory? What did it feel like to be in Stonehenge? This is Rupert Till at the University of Huddersfield in the UK. He wants to know what ancient places sounded like. What archaeologists tend to do is take a snapshot of an archaeological site or some sort of archaeological context, and it's like a freeze frame. Everything stops. The difficulty with that is... When you freeze time, everyone is standing still. So it's sometimes difficult to know about the activities of people, what's actually going on in that space. A few years ago, Till and his colleagues measured the acoustics of Stonehenge, a famous Bronze Age stone circle in southern England. They found that the sounds they created within the rocks, say a hand clap or a balloon pop, bounced back and echoed around. Imagine that Stonehenge it was a massive musical instrument, it's a massive drum, is one way to, to look at it. In fact, archaeologists tell us that rather than seeing Stonehenge as a place where people held rituals, it's the building of Stonehenge itself, it's the making of it that's the ritual. Till used the same acoustic archaeology approach to understanding why prehistoric humans painted the walls of caves with images of bears and bison, handprints in simple geometric patterns. Some of the most famous examples are in French caves like Lascaux. And there's a researcher called Yegor Reznikov who in the 90s suggested that there was a link between these cave paintings and sound. The paintings seem to be placed 
in positions that were of particular interest acoustically. Places where sound resonated, like in large cathedral-like chambers. Following in Reznikov's footsteps, Till's team decided to see if there was any link between art and acoustics in a set of caves in northern Spain. They contain the oldest known cave paintings in the world, some of which date to around 40,000 years ago. I was quite surprised by the acoustics, really, in the caves straight away, in that it wasn't what you expected. It didn't immediately feel like walking into a cathedral. Actually, it felt quite quite comfortable, quite welcoming, quite safe, which is strange because my only experience as a child of going into caves I found very claustrophobic and scary. To measure the acoustics of different spots of the cave, the team made all manner of noises. They used these impulses to measure technical properties of the cave's acoustics. They also brought along replicas of musical instruments discovered in European caves. This one is called a bull roarer. It's a hollow tube on a string that you whirl over your head. You need quite a big cave for it. This is a replica of a flute made from an animal bone. And they sang. Hill's group noticed a relationship between the art and the acoustics. What we basically showed was that, especially with the very oldest paintings, which are simple red dots, um, that these were placed in very kind of um, intimate places, that the earliest paintings were hidden away in kind of secretive places. It's kind of the opposite of what Reznikov found in France. Uh, we found that it was in the most dead places that the earliest paintings were. And actually we then found that later paintings were then placed in slightly more resonant positions. Knowing that Europe's earliest artworks were painted in closed, acoustically inert spaces offers a glimpse into the lives of the people who made them. So we start to get a picture of people voyaging into these rather terrifying, dark spaces. Um, people didn't live there, they only went there for these for kind of special occasions, perhaps rites of passage or something like that. And they were voyaging into there, they were making these incredibly dramatic paintings, and they were playing musical instruments, and they were interacting with the acoustics of the space. That paints quite a picture of people's lives, and I think starts to illustrate the sort of things we can discover about people by starting to look at music and sound in the past. It's not exactly what Richard Woodbridge had in mind 50 years ago, but the field he spawned, acoustic archaeology, has become a lot more psi than phi. Woodbridge's ideas live on, in the face of skepticism from many researchers. Haber gets asked about them all the time, and he patiently explains why pots and paintings will probably never speak. Maybe it's because whenever we encounter an object, we can't help but imagine what it has witnessed the urn that watched ancient Alexandria crumble, or the still-wet fresco that captured Michelangelo's singing voice. This more romantic notion of objects and their history 
is Dan Scott's preference. It kind of opens up a potential within any object, a historical object, that it has this other life or this kind of secret history that it might contain. And it gives this, this interesting um, quality or agency is the word I like to use in terms, in terms of these objects that they actually are listening. And it's just up to us to find out how we can make them speak. After all, some of them have raised their voices again after all this time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.